Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. And here on this show, we have my coach, Rich Silverman, and we have a guest, Kristen. I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself and what do you do? I'm a fanthropologist. Uh, basically, what that means is I study fans for mostly um, film studios, and I talk to them about what fan concerns are, how they feel about certain things, and um, occasionally advise them on how to approach their fandom, how to build their fandom, and how to hopefully not create a destructive relationship with their fandom, which we all know happens now and then again. And um, So ba basically that's what I do. I study fans and then I tell people about them. So on the one hand, it's uh, possibly one of the most obvious and common sense things that you can do in Hollywood. And on the other hand, uh, a lot of people think I'm a radical, which is kind of hilarious. Well, we don't think you're radical, and it's really sort of a brave new world that we're living in when uh, a position, an expertise like yours is really needed, uh, especially in Hollywood right now. And I'd like to mention that you work for Cimarron Advertising, and they're a big agency in Los Angeles dealing with the entertainment industry. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you do for Cimarron. The Cimarron Group is actually um, one of the oldest film advertising companies that there is in Hollywood. Um, and it doesn't, technically we're considered a creative agency because we don't stick directly to film adver advertising. Uh, a number of other kinds of accounts. Uh, recently we had uh, Mitsubishi and we do a lot of um, uh, resorts and things around the world and things like that. Uh, we also do things that are not considered traditional ad agency things, which is why we're a, a creative agency. Um, we're essentially, if you wanted to make something uh, for any reason at all, you would come to us and you would say, well, I'm going to make this thing and I need a bunch of creative people to do it. Uh, and then you'd hire Cimarron Group, um, one of our divisions or sometimes the whole company. Uh, and, and we would help you with whatever it is. How did you come to Cimarron? What made you go into this whole Phanthropology business? Did you like study Phanthropology at Oxford or Cambridge where you took an advanced degree in fan management <laughs> and so forth? I, I would love to make some sort of claim about having studied um, Phanthropology in school. Unfortunately, it's while fan studies are growing, and there's a lot of really fantastic fan studies departments, I actually majored in um, English literature and in uh, television radio film at Syracuse. And uh, my education there is really, uh, it was a weird thing that led to a lot of things colliding in the right uh, arrangement to head me over to Phanthropology eventually. I did a lot of new media stuff. I was running a lot of experiments on early internet television. Uh, Syracuse University was one of the first student-run television uh, stations that went all the way online. And we were broadcasting uh, half hour to an hour long shows, which was pretty un unusual when um, internet television first started there were a lot of studies that came out that said you could only get people to watch 30 seconds to three minutes of videos, and, and it was crazy to, to think that they'd watch any more than that, and they're never going to want to watch television shows online. Well, the research I was doing back then 
was showing that a lot of people were really excited to watch full television shows online. And that sort of research is the type of thing that has come up over and over again for me, which is how I, how I ended up in Phanthropology. When I, started, when I started working at the Cimarron Group, they hired me without any idea of what I was actually going to do. They just thought I was a person that seemed useful. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it's understanding uh, the studying fans versus making assumptions. When you look at female fans and male fans, what are like what are the big differences and what are the similarities? Like what are like when you when you look at them under the microscope? Well, I mean, the thing is, I don't want to make generalizations that to say that when you look at them in a real great detail, you'll always find that female fans are like this. But to look at the general characteristics of female fans versus male fans, um there's actually a really interesting split. And I'm not and I don't want to say that female fans can't do what male fans can do and vice versa. But female fans tend to be very, very concerned with uh, characters and relationships. And they're very into um, the the intricacies of how that develops. And male fans tend to be, uh, I, I want to say almost more, physical with how they manipulate their fandom, where you find a lot of women um, writing fan fiction, you find that um, fan films and uh, prof replicas and things like that tend to be more male. So you have this uh, really great dichotomy that if you look at general fandoms, uh, it's something that you need both uh, that that male energy and that female energy to really drive the fandom to, to the next level. I know that Cimarron is interested in transmedia, doing sort of alternate reality game type experiences. How do you think the differences between the sexes manifest itself in a transmedia experience? Are, are the girls more interested in the story and characters and while, while the guys are looking more for sort of gameplay? Yeah, I think you're looking for, you're looking at... Um, an experience where the where the guys are looking to plug into um, the fandom in, in a different way that the female fans are. The female fans are, uh, in many cases, uh, your encyclopedists, your um, fan fiction writers. Um, they're very engaged in tracking. Um, both news about uh, the uh, transmedia project in general and also in tracking the development of certain characters. Um, whereas your male fans are very focused on the visual aspects. Um, the, if you have an ARG, that's going to naturally sort of lean towards um, a, a male engagement um, not, which is not to say that women don't play ARGs. They definitely do. Uh, it, for reason, it tends to attract uh, a slightly larger male audience and female audience. What about um, differences in age groups? Do you see uh, market differences between a teenager and a 25-year-old, or do they tend to more or less have the similar psychological makeup? I mean, there's definitely certain types of stories that will appeal specifically to a 15-year-old versus a 25-year-old. But what I find is that in most large fandoms, you're going to get an entire range of age groups. And those age groups are going to be at different skill levels. Um, 
for the most part, somebody who's 25 is going to have more skills to contribute to their fandom than a person who's 15, um, which creates a great, uh, a great method of interaction in which the, the people who are on the younger age uh, level are learning from people who fandom for a long time. Or And this is probably one of my favorite things about fandom, people who genuinely just have certain skills. They're great fiction writers. They're great artists. Uh, they're great uh, with fan films and things like that. What are the types of things that uh, younger transmedia fans tend to like to do in these alternate reality games, in your opinion? I would say that when you're looking at a younger uh, audience, you're looking at people who are really just taking the first steps into uh, the wider media world. So, so everything uh, has a different level of... Um, of interaction, you're you're on a much more basic level for the younger fans because they're not as experienced fans. I mean, you'll have some fans who were trained by their parents to be Star Wars fans, and they've been uh, in the fandom literally since they were three years old. Um, but for the most part, you have people who are just really approaching media properties, and so uh, they're starting to engage. Um, they're maybe starting to blog on their own. They're, you know, they're, I mean, obviously they're clicking the like button a lot on all of your social media pages. Um, they're looking to engage with your flash games. Um, whereas your older fans are more mobile, which means if you have an ARG, it's going to skew older because those people can drive and they have jobs and they can essentially control their lives a little bit more. Uh, fewer uh, teenagers are going to be allowed by their parents to drive wherever it is that uh, they want to drive for an ARG um, and that sort of a thing. So there's always that concern. I mean, you know, I'd love to believe that, that you can send a bunch of 15-year-olds out looking for a cake that's going to have a phone uh, that the Joker will call on them, them on but the reality is that that's going to be a slightly older fan base uh, because they have to be able to physically go out and do things. And I think our culture is a little bit more protective of younger people, as, as it should be. You know, there's a lot of weirdos out there. Yes, um, I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> no, I, I'm really not. I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. So, so looking at this from a sort of wider perspective, and th this is a, a million-dollar question for you, is what are the types of things that, say I have a, a new product, a new world that I'm presenting online, what are the types of things that will initially grab the attention of fans and, and create some stickiness and keep them with it long enough for them to become engaged in the story? I think there's three key areas that you have to hit uh, in order to create a world that's going to be at least sticky enough to keep people around for for long enough for you to develop it further. Um, and I like to separate these uh, by saying, uh, we all know traditionally in Hollywood, things are either high concept or low concept. Um, when you get into transmedia, uh, you add another concept and then you have to hit all three at the same time. So you have high concept, which is your highly visual things, ideas that people can grasp immediately, your shock value, um, anything like that. So they'd be like the billboard 
or the movie, um, things, things of that nature, very visual. Uh, on the other hand, you have low concept, that's your encyclopedia, that's your books, that's everything that's very, very dense about your project. And then, um, and, and this, one, this gets overlooked just because it doesn't fall into the nice high-low dichotomy that there is. Um, but the third one is open concept. That's where your fans plug in. If you're making products, that's where your lightsaber would be considered part of your storytelling method. If you're making a video game, it's, an, it's open concept because you want to, to create a puzzle world that uh, people can walk into and solve using their brain. They have to drive something that's open concept. Um, if on, on the most simplistic level, uh, if you're making a product like a beach towel, you would make it something that maybe your, your, uh, your fans can tie it around their neck and it'll be their superhero cape and that ties into your story because it's because of how it looks. Um, but essentially you have to hit all three areas of the triangle or, or you uh, really run into problems with not catching enough different types of fans. Um, because fans all work together as a community. Everybody brings something different. If you have people that are all the same, and and sometimes people who are all attracted to one particular thing have enough different skills to launch something, but it's not as effective as if you make sure that you're attracting people who are artists, people who can make fan films, people who can run blogs, people who will create specialty fan products on Etsy celebrating um, your project. So you have to sort of give enough different types of entry points for fans uh, in order to attract them strongly and, and make them feel like this is something that they would like to invest their time into. Uh, I think most people overlook the fact that when you're, that you're not just looking for somebody to click a like button on Facebook and consider that your fandom. You're looking for somebody who really wants to live and play and transform your story world uh, in different ways. And, and maybe they don't affect the official official story, but they're always going to have an impact on what's considered the most interesting parts of your canon. Uh, so if you ignore that or you minimize their impact, you're going to have a fan base that's very shallow and hard to sustain uh, because shallow people, quite frankly, are, are going to require uh, more work and more money. Um, your fans are, sh and they should be, people who are invested in the community. They're there with you. And in many cases, you should be making a place for your fans uh, to make money. Um, you should not be limiting, overly limiting with um, uh, products that, like if somebody wants to paint paintings about your uh, movie or your book and sell them at a, at a convention, you should probably be supporting that because what they're actually doing is um, adding value to something that we call an information market. Um, in an information economy, the more people know about you, 
the more valuable you are, which is in contrast to a capitalist economy uh, in which the, the less people know of you, the more scarce you are, and therefore the more valuable. None of that is uh, applicable when you're living in an information economy where you can't get everyone to pay attention to you unless they have heard of you before. Yeah, there needs to be a value. It's the difference between Coca-Cola and Shasta. You've probably never heard of Shasta. But uh, I was, you know, it's, it's all about brand value. More people know about you. And there's different value of fans. There's like the really serious fans and then the casual ones. What do you think is the best way to take them from, oh, you know, I'm kind of, maybe click the like button versus I'm a serious fan and I'm going to work as a team to really spread the word. Like uh, they're evangelizing your story. I think, I think you have to consider that your basic uh, surface level fan needs both a reason to stay and they need to progress. There is no fan in the entire world that gets somewhere and is like, I know I know all I need to know about this ever because that person isn't a fan. Um, you want them to continue learning about your story, your story world, and you want them to continue enhancing their skills. So any sort of um, skills practice, I mean, essentially, it's like having uh, a million people that you're trying to level up to like a mage or something. Um, you give them all the opportunities that you can uh, to write, to create, um, to make things, because that is what's going to sustain your fandom over decades. If I mean, if you want to talk serious story world um, maintenance, you have to be planning for years and years. And if you neglect that, it's kind of honest, it, it looks a little careless and everyone can kind of tell. Um, but if you're doing something where you're genuinely planning uh, for a story world to last, you have to be looking down the line and saying, in 10 years, am I going to have a, uh, an interest and an ability developed to write amazing novels. And how do you develop that interest and ability? You have people who are reading all the novels that you put out and practicing by writing their own fan fiction. This is how Star Wars did it. Do you know Star Wars puts out like 10 novels a year now? They couldn't do that. They couldn't create their whole expanded universe to the same extent if they didn't have people who had spent years and years working on fan fiction, becoming better, and maybe not all of them eventually become official writers, but all of them have contributed in some way by pointing out what is important and emotionally connective uh, in the fandom. And, and that's what eventually uh, that process creates your future writers. And... Maybe you can talk a little bit about how fans like to be rewarded for their participation in uh, transmedia experiences. I think I think the most important thing is to realize that it's not it's very hard to maintain a, a complete gift economy in a fandom that that goes over years and years. Um, you don't, I mean, you don't want people to feel like they're not getting anything out of their fandom um, other, than, other than the practice. Uh, if you look at it as um, 
a normal abstract economy. Um, and this is something that uh, Emerson sort of touches on in his essays on wealth and things like that. Um, you have to you have to see an economy as something where you transmute different items and properties into money at some point. Um, so a fan may be rewarded with um, attention, and that is what encourages them to keep writing, and they develop a skill, and then they can turn that skill into money. Um, and, and, and it sort of goes that way uh, in, in almost every transaction. Uh, you can demonstrate that at some point, somebody gets something that they really value. And if they don't get something that they really value, that's not a relationship that's going to continue for very long. Yeah, there needs to be some reciprocal value. Sometimes I see like people become such hardcore fans and there isn't like, here's like a gift, uh, even here's a, any credit. And a lot of times I see it, it revolving around really bad art. Like, and it's almost universally accepted. Like, there's a film called Birdemic or The Room. And some of these bad films have people that are almost organizing these events. They're getting behind it. And it's at this really even more of a serious fandom than you'd see even for what would be respected work. What, do you, what are your thoughts on this uh, phenomenon? I mean, I, I don't want to judge anything. as I'm not the type to judge a particular property or story world as good or bad. Um, because I remember being that person that liked things that everyone else thought was really terrible, and yet I was this hardcore fan of it. Um, so I think the idea is that whether you're a fan, the, the, the actual quality of something that you're a fan of isn't important. It's about the relationship that you have with it and with other people who have a relationship with it. Um, I mean, there's a sense of community, but, but more importantly... Um, it's about people having the ability to, to, to judge the relative taste or enjoyment of a particular property and then connect to other people and then perform all of the fandom behaviors, um, that there are, uh, and sort of move forward in the community through that. No, you're right. There's, um, in the room, this, uh, kind of, a. Uh... B film. There's a one of the things they do is there's a there's a picture of a spoon in the background of the movie because they didn't pull out they bought like a Macy's and they still kept the frame of the an image of a spoon in there which they should take out and put an actual picture in there. But since it's kind of like recognized by the hardcore fans, they throw spoons at the <laughs> audience while you watch it. <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly things like that are what becomes rewarding. I mean, it's actually technically it's a hermeneutic code. Um, there's meaning indicated there and, uh, they're making use of that indicated meaning to connect with their fans, which is terrific. I mean, everyone should pay attention to what codes exist in their property as ways of connecting to people and ways of inspiring conversation and, uh, redirecting attention, um, and all that sort of thing. You just uh, threw out some term in front of the word code, and I don't have a degree in anthropology from Cambridge like you do, so maybe you could mention <laughs> that term again and just explain a little bit about what that is. Uh, a hermeneutic code. That's uh, it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually a term uh, invented by Barth, and uh, if you really wanted to read a terrific paper 
on transmedia and hermeneutic codes and how they work, uh, I would recommend reading Jeffrey Long's MIT thesis. Uh, it's online in, in their archive. Um, and he actually studies how Jim Henson, um, and this is before the, uh, the recent graphic novels, um, how Jim Henson expanded its universe and, and measured its success. Uh, by its ability to uh, progress through hermeneutic codes, um, by which I mean uh, when they introduced a new story and a new medium, they would make a point of uh, answering previously unanswered questions uh, and raising new questions uh, and, and themes and going off in those directions. And then... Um, also raising some new questions that they completely didn't answer and, and left open as uh, other nodes to hook transmedia elements onto. And Jeffrey Long ultimately concludes that uh, up till about 2004, they hadn't been uh, very successful, but I think it's probably one of the best methodical ways of looking at literally how do you do transmedia in the, in the most uh, small, detail-oriented. And I was wondering, how often, you know, is there examples where this incubator of ideas is utilized? Like where there's actually uh, creators that are are taking, you know, the gems that are coming from that world. I th think most creators spend some time uh, avoiding that world. I do know that Law spent a lot of time uh, paying attention to the theories that were being uh, concocted and thrown around. Um, and, and I think they did it specifically so that they could uh, disprove and innovate and have a good idea of what people were thinking so that they could go even further beyond that. Um, but if you look at the traditional literary process, um, it, it actually strongly mirrors what happens in fan fiction. Uh, in terms of isolating certain elements and debating their importance, it's just that the people who are uh, writing fan fiction are debating these th these questions uh, through a, a fiction method, and people who are um, talking about uh, literature in a more academic way are debating it through a very a very structured method. Um, I mean, in Sherlock Holmes. Uh, both the fan fiction community and the academic community have uh, studied extensively uh, Watson's uh, female relationships. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we recognize uh, that as an important aspect of Watson, that he, that he has girlfriends occasionally and that they pull him away from Sherlock Holmes. Um... So there's, there's a parallel development to what happens in literary theory. It, it doesn't get applied always. I think, I, it, quite frankly, I think fan fiction is daunting at times for people. Um, but there's definitely interesting stuff that happens. And, and I think we'll be seeing more people looking at fan fiction in the future as it, as it becomes more normalized. Now, I have a nice nebulous question to ask you about literature, fan communities, fan communities who like literature 
when when I think about transmedia properties, it seems like it's a convergence of of movie fans, of game fans, and of literature fans. Because obviously, with with these transmedia stuff online, there's a lot of reading to be done, and it has a lot of corollaries to to the printed word. Any thoughts or ideas on how to address a community that's made up of three sort of different fan groups, or are they similar? I think what what you find in um, a fandom is that all of the groups will meld together to some extent. You'll just have people that are more attracted to one element than to another. Um, a lot of times when books get made into movies, uh, there are a lot of people who very strongly feel that the book is um, the central part for them. That's the most important part. But that, does, that doesn't mean that they don't see the movie. It just means that they don't connect as strongly to the movie as they do to, do to the book. And when you're talking to a fandom that has issues like that, whether it's a, a direct adaptation or if it's um, a book that then was later <sighs> sequelized or had an element um, made in film uh, like Sherlock Holmes where it's an adventure that was never in a book, um, you have to keep an awareness of all of the different types of uh, entry points into the fandom and speak to all of them at the same time. So a lot of that is literally, it comes down to language. Uh, there are code words in every center of a fandom, um, whether it's the people who read the books or the people who read the movies or the people who play the games. Um, each set of those people are, are going to have specific types of code words that you need to be aware of and using and understanding the meaning behind, um, which is why if, if, if you're working on any sort of property, you have to, you have to know everything that's happening. Um, even if you're working on just the game you um, and you're a specifically a game designer, you have to know everything that happens in the book and the movie um, and like anything that was in their advertising campaign and anything that they, uh, the actors went on TV and talked about um, because all of that is fodder for you to feed back into the game and to make it more relevant um, to all of the other fan groups um, and really tie everything tightly together. I see what you're saying. It's, uh, it's like triggering because uh, you got to know what information they have. It's almost like a stand comedian has to understand the room so they understand what jokes are going to hit because they're going to know what's relevant or no longer relevant because they're going to, all right, it's an older crowd or a younger crowd. So, it's, so I see what you're saying. You have to understand the expectations and the memories that you're going to have to trigger. Yeah, I mean, and there's no way of putting up walls between any of your fan groups. So whoever you're talking to at any given time um, through any medium could be... Um, a fan from any potential entryway, um, which is why it's so important to know them all and keep them all consistent. Are there some common mistakes uh, that you can think of off the top of your head that, that content creators make when, uh, when addressing their fans? Uh, I, think, I think at any point when fans start talking about something and uh, somebody says that that's not important, that it's generally a mistake, not because it's always going to destroy them or uh, make a significant dent, but I, I think the more you can 
engage with your fans, um, the more you can pay attention to what they're up to um, and respond is the most important part. Um, the, the more value you're going to end up with. Um, I think in, in the cases of uh, movies, maybe, you know, maybe you haven't got that many fans talking about the film in 3D and how they feel about that. Um, but you've almost always got some. And if you're not going to address uh, their anxieties and concerns and thoughts about the film in 3D, then you're missing out on an opportunity to, uh, I guess in the most crass way, make more money. I mean, if you're not going to talk to your fans about that, you could be losing out on maybe $10 million. And sure, that's not a lot for a movie that will maybe make $500 million, uh, but it's definitely a, a lot of money in general. So I think every piece um, that you're putting together is gonna, can, can potentially have an effect like that. You know, it's a million here, it's two million there. Uh, it all adds up eventually. So you should be prepared to always talk to your fans about any sort of issue that comes up. And you should know where they are um, because I find that a lot of people don't always know uh, where their fans are, who's influential in their fandom as, as compared to who's a newbie, um, who has come to your fandom and then found it completely impenetrable. Um, there's not a lot of people who think about making easy pathways in. Um, uh, I think sometimes because they're concerned that more established fans will be turned off by, by uh, sort of a, a summarization or uh, an encyclopedia or any of the things that fans themselves generally do to get other fans into the fandom. Um, I think people are just a little bit nervous about acting in a, in a truly authentic and genuine manner uh, that shows how passionate they are about the story world. It's kind of like the comic book companies now with uh, the success of all these major movies that they're trying to create comics that are natural jump-off points from the film so they don't have to have see a radically different universe because there's sometimes a disconnect. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens this summer because we're starting to confront um, some of the most difficult parts of comic book universes um, and, and how that integrates in with um, comics and hopefully TV shows eventually um, is going to be really groundbreaking. I mean, if you look at the Green Lantern alone, uh, he's, he's the most problematic um, DC Comics uh, character uh, just because he's so intertwined with the crisis and that gets really complicated for people very fast. Um, and, and so you have, uh, he may be uh, the third best known, um, but he, he's got a lot of stuff going on. And so teaching people how to get into that and and uh, and not lose them just because you've gone from movie back to comic book or to animated series uh, is going to be really tricky to pull off. Um, but but uh, from what I know, I'm I'm very optimistic that they've uh, uh, tried to really take some serious care with it. Now we're talking about 
you're, there's an art to this, you know, you're, and you're, you're an artist, and when you look at, no, I hear what you're saying, this is, this is very sophisticated, what new storytellers you feel have the best communication skills with their fans? Because we always hear about George Lucas with Star Wars, and what, what are the newest storytellers in various mediums that you go, these guys on the level, or girls? Uh, well, I mean, gosh, I, th- I don't want to... I'm, I'm, I'm living on so many different levels now. There's some that are very obvious to people and some that are less so, but I don't want to be too obscure here. Um, definitely, um, Joss is terrific. I mean, just, just his transition with Buffy from, um, from a television show into a, a comic series uh, that has essentially had several more seasons after uh, the television show um, has been amazing. And the way that he's communicated with his fans throughout that process um, has been terrific. Um, I think that the, the storytellers in general tend to get it. It's, it's actually, it's uh, quite striking. The storytellers themselves get it. It's... Um, Middle management. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... And the worst part is that sometimes you have uh, these executives who also really, really get it, and they're fantastic, and they're huge fans, um, and they can't convince anybody uh, that what they know from being a fan is uh, is accurate. And that's, I mean, that's sort of where I step in um, to say things like, this guy over here is right, and let me show you all of the graphs that prove him right. So you're like the fan enforcer. <laughs> that could be a comic book and then a movie and then an animated show and then a movie based on the animated show and then a transmedia property based on the movie of the animated show I don't know where I'm going with We're this gonna make it <laughs> well another thing that, that we need to talk about because we can't talk about fan communities without talking about what happens when things go south and you know Hollywood loves, loves nothing else than an angry fan and there are plenty of those out there and fans who hate everything, who complain about no matter what you do, they have something to gripe about. How do you, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with, with fan revolts? Or is there even such a thing as a bad fan? Damage control. I think there's there's a lot of negativity out there, certainly. I mean, there, I, I think a cursory glance of almost any uh, film blog or... Um, or, or even like the, the Facebook pages of any major studio um, shows you that there's a lot of people who are unhappy with a lot of things. However, what I've discovered is that most of these things that they're unhappy about um, tend to have to do with reality and the fact that the studio is not confronting it. Um, so what I like to do is really compile uh, a lot of the stuff that's both positive and negative, because I don't want to scare anybody, so I throw the positive stuff in there. Um, but the key is really looking at the details of why people are upset about something uh, and not looking at the scary words. Like... I hate you, studio. Why are you doing this to my favorite character? And they're screwing it up again, and this is terrible. Um, Things like that, people tend to panic and uh, run away from. 
what I found is that if you actually look at the language that people use, they will tell you precisely why they're upset. And there's generally a very simple solution. I mean, honestly, in more cases than not, the solution is incredibly simple. And, uh, and frankly, it doesn't even always cost that much money to fix things like that, to make people happy. Um, it's, a ma it's a matter of always uh, managing expectations because when your expectations get out of, uh, out of whack, you're going to have fans that are upset. Um, but I mean to manage expectations in a positive way. Like if you're promising a uh, appearance at a con, don't show up and do something lame. Uh, either show up and do something awesome or wait for the next one. Um, a lot of negative, I was going to add a lot of negativity also, uh, emanates from anxiety over the film and over the project and how it's doing. Um, because you'll notice that a lot of entertainment blogs like to report, um, more than anything else that something is going to be a terrible disaster and no fan really likes this. If they love a property, they want it to be awesome because the last thing they want is to have all their friends tell them that the thing that they have spent the last decade loving is lame. They want all their friends to go in and love it and become a fan like them. Um, so, so I think a lot of it also has to do with looking at what people are anxious about and taking the steps to make sure that their anxiety is lessening as you go and not becoming more concerned. Uh, I mean, I'm not gonna name any names on this one, but there have been some recent comic book movies that people have been very freaked out about how they were gonna turn out. Um, and it has to do with the materials they were seeing and them not being quite right um, and studying when that happens and getting the information to the studio as fast as possible is one of the things that I do. So it's, it's I mean, I, th I think there's no negative that I can't come with a positive uh, course of action from. So I don't really see negative fan feedback as something terrible and something that has to be avoided at all costs or something that we'd like to ignore. Um, I see it as something that offers a lot of value, valuable information for studios um, that just at times has to be presented to them in the right way. And you can use negative fan reactions as an opportunity to make something better. Yeah, I mean, I love when all the fans are saying something uh, that that they are positive they're going to hate uh, about a project that I have already decided I don't much like about a project because then I show up and I have all this data um, to show a studio that they have a problem here and that there's a couple of course of uh, a couple of courses of actions that they can take uh, to get it fixed. Um, uh, some of the things I like to cover are uh, how they're portraying their actors. It's actually quite easy to make a fan 
uh, hate the lead actor that's portraying uh, this character that they're really invested in. Um, and so there's there's a lot of conversations that I have about how do we present this person in public in a way that is not going to different make him feel like the he's estranged from the fans um and and things like that really i mean it's the solutions are almost always surprisingly simple you just have to know how to listen i feel like the it's like the fan whisper <laughs> you know and speaking of fan whispers and this idea I, I kind of look at like groups, like um, like I really geek out with some of my comic book f friends who love comic books, or we have bad movie night, and there's certain people in the groups that just energize everybody and gets everybody excited to do things. And I see like Rocky Horror Picture Show, they're the there's like the serious people in the group, and they energize them. Without them, they're the glue. You know, I'm wondering, do you think when it comes to uh, you know like movies, do you think some studios are doing enough to? I guess galvanize this stuff of people for when the film is released and when it films out for a few years. I think the key in um, working with a fandom is looking for those people. It's kind of like being a talent scout. Um, you are always looking for the people who have uh, like the irrationally long um, posts to a blog post that you know, no one was really making the point um, that they're talking about, but they've got a lot of information there. Um, and they've just laid some knowledge on everybody that's hanging out at that blog. Um, those people are worth their weight in gold. You know, you really want to find them and then you just want to enable them as much as possible, you know, because good or bad, those people are the ones that are, are going to, going to get everybody excited and on board. You know, those people are the ones that are going to chase down your critics and uh, and argue with them if they've uh, made an unfair point about your film. Those people, those people are the key to your fandom. And while it's scary for people to have to sort of find them and then let them go and do their thing. I think it's it's the only way the only way to really build a fandom. Oh, it's great. Do you think there's a new profession out there with the whole transmedia world where they're wanting to have a lot of a large audience that they're going to, people are eventually going to be hired to be that kind of force of fandom? I think yeah, I think in the next 10 years we'll see uh, an emergent class of something like a professional fan. And they may not always be the same uh, type of person they'll they'll be bloggers they'll be artists they'll be fan fiction writers they'll be convention organizers um but but we'll see an emergent class of creatives essentially um that are being incubated as professional fans uh while they sort of gather their creative energy and maybe move on to some something original or even just really help direct the fandom in a totally new way. Um, but, but I definitely think that there's going to be, like, professional fan, I think that'll be a job. All of this is such a huge topic, and we could continue talking about this for the next several hours, I am sure. But 
time is of the essence. And I want to ask you this one last question. One piece of advice you would be you would give to content creators in terms of fan relationships, what would it be? Listen. Always listen. Never stop listening. And then respond. And don't respond like you haven't listened. Because first you listen and then you respond. And if you do it over and over uh, enough times, you will always know the right move to make for your fandom. Well, we have been talking to fanthropologist Kristen Olson of Cimarron Group. And this is Rich Silverman. You can find me. I'm going to plug the Twitter. This is uh, Rich Silverman. You can find me at richsilverman.com. My Twitter handle is the same. And sitting across from me is my esteemed colleague, Peter Katz. Peter? All right. uh, Please check out peterkatz.net. And it's Katz, K-T-Z. And the Twitter is uh, peterkatz1. And we are on Facebook. But anyways, we look forward to more exciting interviews on Hollywood 2.0. Thanks again, Kristen. Take care. You too.